This morning we're in our second week of our summer series on the book of Proverbs, and it's called Becoming Wise. We're taking a look at uh, the book of Proverbs for the next um, probably six or seven weeks now, talking about what does it mean for us to become wise people. Again, not a word that we necessarily think of most often when we think about the kind of people that we want to be, but it's a word that the book of Proverbs offers us as um, an encapsulation of what it means to live life well. To live life in the sight of God, to know Him, to respond well to life, to be, in the words here, to be wise. Uh, one thing I should have mentioned last week, we'll put some resources on the web, on our webpage this week of uh, further reading you could do for those of you that like to do a little bit of reading on Proverbs. I will say there's one book that we made available in the church offices back there called, um, I think it's called Reading Proverbs. It's by uh, Trimper Longman, an Old Testament scholar, and it's a great uh, beginning text on the book of Proverbs, so that might be something of interest for some of you. Uh, before we read our text this morning, uh, let's, uh, let's take a minute to pray. Let's pray together. Father, this, this is your word. Here in the book of Proverbs, you speak to us about what it means to be and to become wise. And so we pray that you would do your good work of making us into wise people. You'd show us what that means, help us to take it in, and we pray that you would be honored in us. Some of us um, are in need of wisdom, and we know it, and we ask you for that wisdom. Some of us are wise, and we need to grow wiser still. Would you, would you give us your wisdom? Some of us are in need of wisdom and, and don't even know it yet. Would you open our eyes that we might see our need for you? And we pray all this in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to be in Proverbs chapter 3 this morning, verses 1 through 12. This is on page 528 of our uh, Pew Bibles, if you'd like to use one of those. Roughly in the middle of your Bible. Proverbs 3, verses 1 through 12. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and length of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Okay, Proverbs 3, 1 through 12. Here's what we're going to talk about this morning. Something that I think this, this part of Proverbs highlights for us, and it's this. If you are ever going to have a close, intimate relationship with God, then you're going to have to learn how to trust God from the very core of your being, from the inner part of you. You're going to have to learn how to trust God. Not just lip service, not religious platitudes, not a vague hope that there's some sort of um, benevolent divine force looking over your life, but real trust, real dependence, and real faith. 
In this passage this morning, it tells us that if we're going to have this kind of real faith, if we're going to have this kind of real trust at the center of our being, it means that we're going to have to have a heart that is wise. And in these verses towards the end, we're going to see that um, they, they show us two scenarios, two windows into our heart that tend to show us if we have this kind of wise heart. Okay, the windows that show us if we really are trusting God in this kind of foundational, life-changing way. So, so we're going to talk about a wise heart and these two windows into our heart to see if that's really something that's true or could become true for us. Okay, this wise heart. What does it mean for us to have a heart that is wise? The core of this whole passage, I think, is in verses 5 and 6. Let's take a look at those again. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and he will make your paths straight. Okay, there's a, there's a fundamental dichotomy in the way people tend to live their lives, and we all live our lives. We either trust God to take care of us and to lead us, or, or we don't trust him and we trust something else. In the words of Proverbs, we either trust God or we lean on our own understanding. We lean on something other than God. We lean one way or the other. In this sense, there's no, there's no standing straight. Everybody needs a V8, right? You're, you're leaning in one direction or the other. It has to do with this fundamental commitment of our lives. Okay, look at, uh, again at verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Okay, the Hebrew word here for heart means more than what we often mean in English. It doesn't just mean our, our emotions or um, our affections. Your heart is everything about you. It means all your affections, all your emotions, all your reason, all your intelligence, all of your will. In other words, the very core of your being. Everything about you is to trust the Lord with the core of who you are. Now, here's the thing about it. It doesn't break down into these two simple categories of um, the religious and the irreligious. Okay, like you might think it is, would. Okay, um, the re- religious people are those who... Trust God. And irreligious people are those who lean on your own understanding. Their own understanding. It's not that simple. Because the truth is that religious people and irreligious people lean on their own understanding. What does that mean? An irreligious person. Um, there is no God. Or if there is, he's so distant and remote from us that he doesn't really have much impact on our daily lives. And because there is no God, or effectively there is no God, then life is up to me. I have to make it on my own. I have to make my life work. I have to somehow be smart enough. I have to be somehow be skilled enough. There is no one on my side. Life is up to me. Okay, an irreligious person leans on their own understanding. But religious people lean on their own understanding too. There is a God. And because there's a God and he set up the world in a certain way, there is a, there is a system by which I can now do my religious duty to get God to pay off for me the way I want him to. Okay, a religious person leaning on their own understanding. I'll go to church. I mean, heck, I'll lead a Bible study. I'll listen to only Christian music. I'll obey all the rules. And at the end of the day, God is going to essentially owe me. I've jumped through all the right hoops. I've done all the right stuff. And now God is obligated to bless me. Religious and irreligious, both in this sense leaning on their own understanding, both trying to make life work. And I think what the, the writer of Proverbs offers us is a different way to live. What does it mean not to live on our, lean on our own understanding, but to trust God in all our ways? Trusting in God involves a, a deep relational connection with Him. 
Look at verse 6. In all your ways acknowledge him. Okay, This word acknowledge him, again, going back to the Hebrew, it's, it's the word that's most often translated know, that you know something. And in Hebrew, in general, when you talk about knowing something, it's not just a bare set of facts that we sort of intellectually apprehend. That there's usually this nuance to know that it's something that we know intimately, that we're connected with. It's not something that we can just know from afar, but something that you know up close. And that's why one of the um, euphemisms in, uh, in the Hebrew Bible for sexual intimacy is to know someone with that kind of connection, that kind of deep intimacy. And that's the word that's being used here. And so there are some commentators that translate this verse as this. In all your ways, desire him. In all your ways, know him in such a way that you are relationally connected with him. In all your ways, in every aspect of your life, know him. Acknowledge him. Desire God in all aspects of your life. And what you find, if you're somebody who walks into a relationship with God, you find that you're trusting not just in this abstract thing, but in an actual person. We're talking about a relationship of trust with an actual person. It's not just intellectual apprehension to him or openness to his existence. So trusting God means walking into a relationship where you fundamentally now trust this person, this divine person, rather than your own ability to make your life work. You entrust yourself into the hands of God. Let me give you an illustration. Um, from flying a plane, I had to, had to consult two pilots to get, to get my hands around this and Wikipedia on, online. So there are two ways to fly a plane. Uh, and those are, uh, those are called visual flight rules and instrument flight rules. Okay, so if you're flying a plane, and this is the way all novice uh, you know, pilots start out with visual flight rules. They let you go up after a lot of training and, and all, your, uh, all your practice flights. And you can fly a plane when it is sunny outside and there are no clouds and you can see the ground and you can tell where you're going. You can go fly your plane. Visual flight rules. And it works as long as you don't fly into a cloud or as long as night doesn't fall or as long as there's not a storm. Because I'm told that when you fly into a cloud, it takes about five seconds before um, uh, what's called spatial disorientation takes place, or vertigo, that you're, you're flying and, and you lose all visual reference points, and you don't necessarily know which way is up. And from what I'm told, if you're flying a plane this way, it doesn't take very long before you, without even realizing it, your plane starts to bank and you don't even know, and you don't even know it. And apparently this is what happened back in 1999 um, to John F. Kennedy Jr., He's flying his plane to Martha's Vineyard, and uh, night falls, and it's hazy outside, and he can't, the visual conditions deteriorate, and he can't see well enough, and he doesn't know how to fly by his instruments. And before he knew it, his plane was banking and diving, and he spiraled around, and he crashed his plane. And this happens a lot to novice pilots when they get into a situation they can't handle, because all they can rely on is their sight, and there are plenty of conditions when you fly where you need something more than that. And that's what these verses are talking about in the way that we live our life. There are plenty of situations in life where we at least have the illusion of, I can see it's broad daylight, I can see what's going on, and I can navigate my life. But what about those situations in life where it really highlights for us that we can't? What about the times that we fly into the cloud and suddenly we don't know which way is up? Flying by instruments, having something that you can trust besides your own ability to see, 
having something that can give you an orientation to life, to make sure that your wings are level, to make sure that you are headed in the right direction. The writer of Proverbs says, this is what it means to trust in the Lord, to fly by instrument instead of by flight. Because you get yourself into situations, and in fact your whole life is a situation, that you can't navigate on your own, that you can't see clearly enough on your own. Trusting in the Lord, leaning on Him instead of your own understanding means living in the reality of God and in His wisdom rather than your own resources, rather than your own ability to navigate life for yourself and see the situations of life. Now, if you look at these verses, though, think about, look at the things that are promised here. The verses roughly break down into odd, the odd verses where these imperatives are given, like trust the Lord with all that you are, with all your heart. But the, and then the even verses give these promises of great blessing. Verse 2, length of days and years of life and peace. Verse 4, favor and good success. Verse 6, straight paths. Verse 8, healing to your flesh. And most um, colorfully of all, verse 10, barns filled with plenty and vats bursting with wine. Okay, I think the way we can sum up some of these things that, that Proverbs says are the blessings of living in trust of God, or, or in verse 2, when it talks about uh, peace. It mentions this word peace. We, th- we think about peace and we think everybody laying down their arms in the absence of conflict. But in Hebrew thought, peace was much more than that. It wasn't just the absence of conflict. It was, it was the presence of universal flourishing. Peace was everything the way it was meant to be. Your work going the way it's meant to be. Your relationships going the way they're meant to go. This universal, all-embracing goodness of life. And that's what these verses talk about. For those who live in the trust of the Lord. Now sometimes we see how the way, the way that, that plays out in life pretty clearly. We see that if you follow life, if you trust God, if you walk in His wisdom, that things just go better in life. Um, one example the book of Proverbs brings up time and again is the difference between a sluggard and a diligent person. Okay, The lazy guy and the diligent guy. Uh, listen to Proverbs 13.4. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Okay, What does that mean? You look around and in general... People who are lazy, who don't go to work, who don't do their work well, they don't flourish. And people who are diligent tend to flourish. They do their work, they do it well, and things tend to go better for them. A lot of our experience proves that. But then you look around, and it brings up some hard questions. Um, What do we do with the fact that so often in our lives, it seems like hard work or attention to God or trusting Him doesn't seem to pay off with the reward that we expected? What happens when we're trying to walk with God and trust Him and we find that literally or metaphorically our barns are not overflowing and our vats are not full, that we're not being blessed in the way that we expected? Let me give you a couple thoughts on this. If you were to read these verses in isolation from the rest of the Bible, you would, in fact, set yourself up for a great disillusionment. But if you read through the book of Proverbs, it's interesting. You'll see that there are, that there are counter-Proverbs, that there are Proverbs that have to be read in line with this. Um, for example, Proverbs 10, chapter 2 and 3, or chapter 10, verses 2 and 3. Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the craving of the wicked. Treasures gained by wickedness. Writer of Proverbs, he looks around and he says, I see wicked people flourishing and gathering treasures. And what's he say? Ultimately, those won't 
ultimately those won't pay off for them. But in the short run, we see flourishing. We see the wicked prosper sometimes. Um, there are what are called better than Proverbs in, in the book of Proverbs, like 22.1. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. Okay, what's implied? There are situations in your life in which in order to maintain your good name and your good reputation, you might have to forfeit riches. There might be opportunities that come up in life that would make you very wealthy, and you have to turn aside from those if you're going to maintain a good name. There's not this simple one-to-one relationship between doing the right thing and suddenly these abundant material blessings. If you're familiar with the first part of the book of Psalms, there are psalms of lament. Listen to this, Psalm 13, 1 and 2. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul, have sorrow in my heart all day long? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Throughout the Bible, you see the reality of what it's like to live in this life where it seems like good is not always paid off. Sometimes it seems like it is, and often it seems like it's not. And when you take the look at Scripture as a whole, you see Jesus, for example, utterly righteous, utterly perfect, receiving death and condemnation. And what we see is that the promises in Scripture about flourishing, I think, are really seen with the long range in view. Even now, trusting God brings a certain amount of blessing into our lives. It brings some real healing. It brings some real flourishing. But we don't see the fullness of it. We don't see it in all its glory, but one day we will. The problem is not that God doesn't deliver on his promises, but that he doesn't deliver on his promises in the time that we expect him to or sometimes that we demand that, we, that he do. Because we look at our life and we, we think that we're made for 80, 90, some of us maybe 100 years, the span of our life. But in fact, we're made for eternity. And many of the blessings of Scripture we see actually come in the end. And Scripture promises us there is a day when Jesus is coming back and justice really will be done and wickedness really will be punished and God's people really will be cared for. And we can know that one day there really will be peace. I spent more time on that than I planned to, but just to say when you read these promises and you look at your own life, you need to maybe expand the timeline of the way you see, expect those promises to be fulfilled. That Jesus really does come through. He really is good to his promise. And we are a people right now living in between times, waiting for him to come back and waiting for the full flourishing that he promises us. Now, for us living in the in-between, how do we know if we're doing this? How do you know if you're trusting God? Okay, at the end of this passage, we see these, again, these two windows that give us snapshots into our life that maybe shed some light on, are we people who really trust in God? Or are we people who really lean on our own understanding? Uh, show some light on us as, as far as whether or not we are people who are, who are living by sight, who are flying visually, or if we're actually people who can trust our instruments and trust our God. And the first great window into our life is prosperity. Look at verses 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your produce, and then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. This is one kind of cloud bank that we fly into in our lives when things are going really, really well, when we seem to be prospering. 
when things seem to be working for us? What happens when you're successful, when you're wealthy in this sense? And that could be financial wealth. It could be you could be following pursuits that don't actually pay off in financial wealth, but pay off in reputation or recognition, some other satisfaction it brings into your life. What happens when things are going really well? Well, a few things tend to happen. We tend to slowly attribute our success to ourselves. Okay, things start going really well in your life, and, you, and we begin to think, you know, I really can get things done. I, I really can make life work. Look at this area of my life. I've been diligent, and it's flourishing. We tend to think there's this simple one-to-one relationship between our effort and our intelligence and the wealth and success that we have. And we tend to become prideful. And we tend to become hardened. And we tend to have this very token appreciation for God. God is good, but I've worked really hard. Think about how that makes you begin to look at other people. This area of their life is not flourishing. They must not work as diligently as I do. They must not attend to their lives as well as I do. They must not be quite as capable, quite as good, quite as shining as I am first thing that tends to happen. second thing is that we tend to grasp onto our success is the thing that actually gives real meaning to us. The thing that starts to really pat us on the back. The thing that really makes our life sing for us. If you've seen the movie Chariots of Fire, at the heart of this movie there are two different men, both um, both runners. And one, uh, his name was Harold Abrams, and he said to a friend at one point in the movie, He says, I am forever in pursuit, and I don't even know what I'm chasing. Here was somebody that was winning race after race, searching for something, and it was never quite enough for him. And then he says this on the night before, the day before his his finals of his sprint in the Olympics. And now in one hour's time, I will be out there again. I will raise my eyes, and I'll look down that corridor, four feet wide, with ten lonely seconds to justify my whole, my whole existence, but will I? Somebody at the very cusp of the greatest success in his life, and every time he has another race, that success hangs in the balance for him. Will I justify my existence with this race too, or will it come collapsing around me? Third thing is we tend to see our wealth as this just... Uh, reward, and so it's primarily for our own use. Okay, if you believe you've earned it under your own effort, if you believe you really had it coming to you, it's not very hard to believe uh, that you are in fact entitled to this. That your success is there to serve you. That whatever goodness comes into your life is primarily for your own benefit. And then the fourth thing that happens is that our relationship with God tends to become this thin veneer of religiosity. I had this friend years ago who one day showed up wearing new eyeglasses. And so we asked her about them, and she didn't wear contacts before this. She didn't wear glasses before this. And it turns out that her glasses just had plain glass in them with no prescription whatsoever. And she said, well, I just thought they sort of looked cool. As somebody who grew up wearing glasses from that very awkward young age, it just seems wrong that they can now become a fashion statement for somebody to make them look better. But here's the thing, she put, she put them on as this fashion accessory, but she didn't need them in any sort of way that was really going to change her life or change the way she saw her whole life. Didn't have any prescription in it. Didn't change the way she saw the world at all. 
And likewise, we might come to church, we might profess to follow Jesus, but our Christianity becomes simply a fashion statement, an accessory, a look, but one that doesn't really fundamentally alter our view of ourselves or God or our world. We give lip service to God, maybe, but in our hearts we believe that our success is really about our own doing. So our relationship with God becomes this add-on to our lives rather than the central reality of our lives, the central commitment of our heart. Now, how can you tell if in the success of your life you're trusting in the Lord or leaning on your own understanding? Let me give you a couple thoughts. First, see that all the success, all the recognition, all the wealth that comes into your life is a gift from the generous hand of our God. Recognize that you might have worked very hard to achieve what you have achieved, but even the ability to work hard is a gift from God. The intelligence that paved the way for us, the strength to endure the setbacks, the knack for making good investments, even these ingredients of success are a gift from your God. Okay, first thing, see that these are all gifts. Second thing, to know this window in your soul if you're trusting in the Lord, if your success does not come to define you. Second guy in the, in the movie uh, Chariots of Fire was, was a uh, Scottish guy named Eric Littles. And in contrast to all of Harold Arum's uh, drivenness, there was this freedom in Eric Littles, a world-class athlete, goes to the Olympics as well. At one point in the movie, he says, I believe that God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Not I have ten seconds to justify my existence, but I feel his pleasure. And interestingly in the movie, uh, Eric Littles finds the freedom to lay down his success. He's on the ship on the way over from England. I think it was to Paris where the Olympics were going to be, and he finds out that the qualifying heats for one of his race are on Sunday. And it was Eric Little's conviction that he should not race on Sunday because it was the Lord's Day and it was meant for rest and for honoring God. So he's in this great dilemma. And he tells the organizers of the, of the uh, English team that, that he can't race and they're dumbfounded and they don't understand and they tell him that much. And he looks at them and he says, I can't, I'm not sure I understand either. But I know that I have to honor God. And so I know that I cannot run. And he doesn't. Great success, but he was willing to lay it down because it did not define him. Third way you can know with this window in your soul, are you trusting in the Lord? Are you leaning on your own understanding? If you are open-handed with the wealth, the honor, the power, the status that come your way, And these verses give us one way to keep this from being this sort of theoretical value. Of course I'm open-handed. I would do anything the Lord called me to with my wealth. Well, Proverbs makes it very practical. Look what it says. Honor God with our wealth and the first fruits of all our produce. Okay, there's there's a broad and a narrow context to this. The narrow context is he's talking about the worship of God and he's talking about actually bringing tithes and offerings bringing part of what you've earned and giving it to God as a sign of trust. Okay, there's a, there's a, there's a worship context for this. He literally meant, if you're going to honor God with your wealth, then you need to give back a tenth of it. That's what he meant. Okay, that's the narrow context, but there's a broader context as well. Honoring God with our wealth, using all our wealth in ways that go along with God's purposes in the world. Not simply paying off God, He asked for my 10%, and now the rest is for me. 
But seeing all of our wealth, all of our status, all of our achievement is a gift from God that's meant to be used gratefully serving Him. Okay, it doesn't ask what belongs to God and what belongs to me, but it asks the harder relationship-driven question. How can I be a good steward? How can I be a good caretaker of the things that God has given me? See, when you do that, you see that you're wearing glasses that actually have some prescription to it, that actually change the way you see the world. A Christianity that makes you now look at your success in a way that says, how can I look at this differently? If, if I'm really trusting in God, if, it's re- if my life is really about serving Him, how can I look at all the resources of my life in a way that I might be open-handed and generous and use them for good purposes? One way that happens is we begin to really care about the poor and care about those in need around us. And the fourth thing, how do you know this window in your soul if you aren't crushed when those good things are taken away? That doesn't mean it's not hard. It doesn't mean you're not disappointed. But it does mean when good things are taken out of your life that you're not destroyed by it. Because we don't think that that's where our life is found. Now maybe you look through this window in your soul and you think, I'm not sure I am trusting God. Where do you go with this? Well, take this window and do what the writer of Proverbs says. Step into it. Begin to honor God with your wealth. Whatever, whatever form that wealth takes. Take steps in that direction. What would it mean for you to use your wealth, whether that's money or something else, in a way that shows that you, trust, you have to trust God to provide for you? You're going to use it for good purposes in such a way that that then leaves you needing God to show up again in your own life. Take the first steps of beginning to honor the Lord with your wealth. Okay, one window in your soul. Second window in your soul. Verses 11 and 12. Prosperity. Second thing is adversity. The other great cloud that we fly into. Another cloud bank. Verses 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son he delights in. What happens when things in your life don't go the way you planned? What happens when you're not successful? What happens when the good work of your hands seems to fail when um, disaster comes into your life? And that may be because you've made some serious misstep in your life. Or it may be for no reason you can put your finger on at all. What happens when you lose your job or your health or your spouse? When you aren't getting the recognition that you deserve at work. When you can't remember the last time your spouse said, I love you and meant it. When you feel trapped by your circumstances. When your parents' health is failing and you're watching the ravages of cancer or Alzheimer's or heart disease. And you feel like your life's falling apart. What happens when your life seems drab and disappointing and a failure? When you're lost in that kind of cloud, how do you react then? Maybe you react with anger and accusation. God, how could you do this to me? How can you do this and still be good? Don't you see all that I've done for you? All the ways I've sacrificed to be a good Christian? I deserve better than this. How can you do this to me? Maybe you react with anger and accusation, or maybe the opposite. Maybe you react with self-condemnation. I knew it. I knew this would happen. Of course this would happen to me. This is the kind of thing that always happens to me. And it just shows again that God, in fact, doesn't love me. How could he? Why would he? 
This is the way my life goes. Now, either of those reactions is what the writer of Proverbs talks about in leaning on your own understanding, whether that's shaking the fist at God or shaking the fist at yourself, whether that's God is not good and this proves it, or whether that's God does not love me and this proves it. How would you know? How would you know if the circumstances of your life proved to you that God doesn't love you? How could you possibly read the situations of your life and know what it tells you about God's existence or his love? How could you possibly know what is really ultimately best for your life? Can you see the bigger picture? Can you see the grand scheme? Can you see God's work over the course of your whole life? In fact, over the course of the whole universe, can you see what he is really up to? Can you, with your limited experience, with your finite mind, with your feeble strength, can you possibly know better than God? what should happen in your life or in other people's lives? Of course not. How could you? How could I? You are leaning in your own understanding. You are trusting in your own wisdom. There is another way to handle the disappointments and the, and, um, the hard things that happen in life. And it's remembering the gospel in the midst of your suffering and in the midst of your discipline Look again at verses 11 and 12. Look who it's addressed to. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him who he loves, as a father the son in whom he delights. My son, my daughter, my child, God addresses us as his children. It says, the Lord reproves the one he hates, the one he ignores, the one he resents. No, the Lord reproves the one that he loves as a father, the son, in whom he delights. This is addressed to the one who is in this relationship with Jesus, who is delighted in, who is loved. How can we trust that he regards us as a child, that he loves us, that he delights in us? By looking to Jesus. How do we know that God loves us? How do we know that we're his children? How do we know that we're in his family, that we're not orphaned, that we're not left on the outside? Because Jesus, the Son of God, came to bring us home. He came to take the displeasure and the, and the um, punishment that we deserve so that we wouldn't have to. He came to take us who were spiritual orphans, lost, running in the other direction, and to bring us home. How do we know that God loves us like this? Because he sent his son to die for us that we might know and that we might really be brought home. You see, if you are in Christ, then you have the guarantee of God's favor. Christ has won it for you. And so whatever pain, whatever struggle, whatever disappointment life brings you, then you know that it is not a sign of God's displeasure. But it is in fact somehow mysteriously a part of God's good work in your life. He's shaping you. He's disciplining you. He's sometimes reproving you, but he's always loving you. Now, the writer of Hebrews takes these very verses and he applies it to a group of Christians who are being persecuted, who are suffering tremendously. In chapter 12, he quotes these verses, and then he goes on to say that this is God's discipline. He says God's treating you as a child in his family. And the discipline of the Lord is not only isn't proof that God doesn't love us, that he's abandoned us, it's actually proof of the opposite. God's discipline is proof that God, in fact, loves us. Because what good father doesn't discipline his child? 
To be a good parent means that you care about your child enough that you will not let them go the wrong way. And when you see um, them struggling with things that might tear them away, you speak into their lives in a way that's going to bring them home because you want not what's worse, but in fact what's best for them. And the writer of Hebrews goes on to say this, God disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. And then he ends by saying, Therefore lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Take heart. God is at work in your life. I want to read a short passage um, from C.S. Lewis. This is a book from the book, The Problem of Pain. And he takes up this question of God's discipline. And he uses the illustration of an artist. Listen to this. Over a sketch made idly to amuse a child, an artist may not take much trouble at all. He might be content to let it go, even though it's not exactly the way he meant it to be. But over the great picture of his life, the work which he loves, though in, in a different fashion, as intensely as a man loves a woman or a mother or a child, he will take endless trouble and would doubtless thereby give endless trouble to the picture if it were sentient, if it could respond. One can imagine a sentient picture after being rubbed and scraped and recommenced for the tenth time, wishing that it were only a thumbnail sketch whose making was over in a minute. And listen to this. In the same way, it's natural for us to wish that God had designed us for a less glorious and less arduous destiny. But then we are wishing not for more love, but for less. When we ask not to be disciplined, when we ask that the Father would not give us that kind of care and concern, we're not asking to be loved more. We're asking to be loved less. And our Father tells us that for His children, He will not let that happen in our lives. That He's a Father who loves us and He's going to use even the sufferings of our life to make us more like Jesus. That, our, that His holiness might be reflected more in our life. So let me just say this in conclusion. Verse 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. This week, when you uh, hopefully chew a little bit, when I chew on what is this going to mean for us, am I somebody who leans on my own understanding or am I somebody who really does trust God at the core of my being? Then look at the two windows of your life. How are you even right now this week dealing with your successes? And how are you dealing with the hard realities of your life? And in both of those, those great cloud banks we fly into, those are opportunities for us to lean not on our own understanding, but trust our Father who is at work for good in our lives in the successes and the failures. He's using it all. That we might be people who know Him, who rest in Him, and who are being made more like Him. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that You would show us what it means to have wise hearts. That you would open our eyes to the ways in which we don't, in fact, trust you. May we learn to do that. Remind us again that you are trustworthy. That you are good. And that we don't have the resources to live life on our own. But you've given us something better. You've invited us in. You've brought us into relationship with you. May we trust you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.